picking up here in the second chapter. And remember, our, our big theme is everyday discipleship. And so there's a, there's a lot of text that we're going to be looking at today. But ultimately, I want to, to land just on that very last word there in the second chapter where uh, Paul says that we have the mind of Christ. So we're going to work our way uh, toward that. But what, what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to read the same uh, portion of scripture, but I want to read it in uh, the message version, which is a, a kind of a paraphrase by uh, Eugene Peterson. Um, how many of you have ever read anything from the, the message? Um, the message is not, it's not so much a translation, it's a bit more of an interpretation. And what people don't realize about it is, um, well, first of all, Eugene Peterson was a scholar, but he was also a pastor. And he pastored actually a you know, relatively smaller church for most of his pastoral life. Uh, but being a scholar, he really wanted uh, to give his people uh, with, with the scripture, something that, that just resonated with their everyday lives. So he did this translation that's called The Message, and it was basically just something he did for his own church. And so he presented it to his church, and then somebody else saw it and got a hold of it, and then ultimately it became uh, you know, mass-produced and, and so forth. And so, like I said, it's, it's not like a translation is more, it's more of a paraphrase, more of a, of a bit of an interpretation, but it's good and it's accurate. So, but the way he translated this portion, I think he really captures what it is that Paul is saying to the Corinthians. So I'm going to read that to us. So remember at the end of the fifth verse, Paul is Uh, talking about your faith not resting in human wisdom, but on God's power. And then from the message, it says this, we, of course, have plenty of wisdom to pass on to you once you get your feet on firm spiritual ground. But it's not popular wisdom, the fashionable wisdom of high-priced experts that will be out of date in a year or so, God's wisdom is something mysterious that goes deep into the interior of his purposes. You don't find it lying around on the surface. It's not the latest message, but more like the oldest, what God determined as the way to bring out his best in us long before we ever arrived on the scene. The experts of our day haven't a clue about what this eternal plan is. If they had, they wouldn't have killed the master of the God-designed life on the cross. That's why we have this scripture text. No one's ever seen or heard anything like this, never so much as imagined anything quite like it, what God has arranged for those who love him. But you've seen and heard it because God by his spirit has brought it all out into the open before you. The spirit, not content to flit around on the surface, dives 
into the depths of God and brings out what God planned all along. Whoever knows what you're thinking and planning except you yourself. The same with God, except that he not only knows what he's thinking, but he lets us in on it. God offers a full report on the gifts of life and salvation that he is giving us. We don't have to rely on the world's guesses and opinions. We didn't learn this by reading books or going to school. We learned it from God, who taught us person to person through Jesus, and we're passing it on to you in the same firsthand personal way. The unspiritual self, just as it is by nature, can't receive the gifts of God's spirit. There's no capacity for them. They seem like so much silliness. Spirit can be known only by spirit. God's spirit and our spirits in open communion. Spiritually alive, we have access to everything God's spirit is doing and can't be judged by unspiritual critics. Isaiah's question, is there anyone around who knows God's spirit, anyone who knows what he is doing, has been answered, Christ knows, and we have Christ's spirit, the mind of Christ. So even when you read it, you're kind of like, oh, okay, yes, that, that's what he's talking about here. Now, remember, some of the Corinthians, as we've seen, are feeling that the gospel that Paul preached is too simplistic. You know, they're, they're really just kind of caught up in the whole thing there within the Corinthian culture, the whole thing about human wisdom. And, and so for them now, the gospel, it just seems a little bit simplistic. It didn't have that ring of human intellect that was commonly heard in the philosophies of the day. It was rather unsophisticated and for some, even a bit embarrassing. I mean, after all, where was the wisdom in the message of a crucified Messiah being the answer to the world's problems? I mean, that, that's just way too simplistic. This is, this is where some of their minds have gone at this point. Remember, Greeks seek wisdom. Paul has been saying that over and over again. This is the big thing for the Greeks. Remember, the Jews wanted a sign. That was a big thing for them. They wanted a miracle. They wanted, they, they, like even in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus did many miracles, but they weren't impressed. He said, you know, you fed a few people with these loaves and fishes. Moses fed a whole generation. So do a bigger miracle. That was a Jewish mindset. But for the Greeks, they didn't care so much about the miraculous. Now, tell us something brilliant. You know, impress us with something intellectual. Greeks seek wisdom. Paul, they would say, Paul, give us something that we can be proud of, something that is intellectually respectable, something we can discuss at the dinner party, something we can bandy about with the scholars. That is where some in the Corinthian church have gone. This is the mindset of, 
of these influential, these are influential people. They're, that's why Paul's writing this, because this small group of people are having an impact on the entire Christian community. They're, they're starting to sway people in this direction. And so Paul responds to him because, you know, they're, they're saying, oh, you know, where's the wisdom in this message, Paul? These, these other teachers, they've, they've got such wisdom. Where's the wisdom in this message? And so Paul says in verse six, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom, but now he, he pokes them a little bit among the mature. So Paul is implying that their problem is immaturity. Oh, this isn't going to go over that well, right? But that's, that's what he's doing. A little bit later, he's actually going to refer to them as their, their problem is that they are infants in Christ. Now, remember, they're aspiring to power, to position, to prestige, they're thinking, now this is the way the church is really gonna advance. This is the way we're going to impact the community when they see that we're so brilliant and they see that uh, we're sophisticated, then you know, everybody's just gonna come rushing to us. Paul says that thinking is actually immature. That's a, a spiritually immature perspective on things. You know, it's astounding to think of how often this thinking process that the Corinthians had has been repeated over and over and over again in the history of the church. It's astounding. What, what we've come to know as mainline Christianity, liberal Christianity, was basically based on, on this very same thing. The idea was, you know, we gotta get rid of the, like the miraculous things. These are a stumbling block to intellectual people and we've, we've gotta get a message that's just really more about uh, social justice and, and we've got to, um, you know, we've, we've got to appeal. People, people are, we, we wanna appeal to the thinkers, you know, so we can't have this like superstitious stuff in here. It's gotta be a more intellectual presentation. And so the seminaries began to go in that direction and ultimately the churches began to go in that direction. And the, the very thing that was motivating this, which was we're gonna turn people off if it's too simple. So if we, if we make it more sophisticated, we're gonna get more people to come in. Well, the very opposite happened. The churches basically just emptied out. And so to this day, there are still those that persist in this. Um, they have beautiful buildings. They have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, but they don't have any people because there's no power, because there's no real wisdom. And so that's what Paul is dealing with here with the Corinthians. And so the first thing he says to them is that they are Immature. So we speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age 
or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, Paul uses this um, terminology in his letters. He talks about this age. Writing to the Galatians, he, he talks about this present evil age. That's how he defines it. And for Paul and the other biblical writers for that matter, but, but more specifically for Paul, uh, Paul communicates in a way where we are to understand that it's from God's standpoint, there are basically two ages. There's this present age, which began really at the fall. God created human beings in relationship with him. That was the original state. And then Adam and Eve, under the influence of the devil, rebelled against God, and sin entered into the world, and so the present evil age began. And so, according to Paul, we are still living in that present evil age, but Paul introduces us to the age to come and, and that's the age when God takes back complete authority over uh, all of the created realm uh, through Christ establishing his throne. And that's ultimately a future event, but what Paul wants us to understand is it's already occurred on a certain level. So now we have this overlap. There's the, the present evil age but, it's, but this new age of the spirit has broken into it. So even though we're still living in this present evil age, we have experiences of the new age through our relationship with Christ and through the spirit. And so we live in what many theologians have uh, called the already but not yet. So it's already here in one sense. We're, we're part of the kingdom. We're part of the new age already. But it's not yet fully realized. But it can be realized in very significant ways, obviously, by, by those who are participating in it. So Paul is speaking of the rulers or the wisdom of this age, that's the wisdom of this current um, time, or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Nothing. Uh, then he goes on, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God revealed to us by his spirit. So what Paul is wanting the Corinthians to understand is that there is a wisdom. It's not, it's not the wisdom of this world. Because the world, through its own ideas of wisdom, would have never dreamed 
his quotation here, his quotation here is, it seems that it's a quote from Isaiah 64, but it seems like it might be a combination of a few different passages. But let's just, it, it, there's enough of it that is from Isaiah. This quote from Isaiah, Paul's pulling on this to say, look, the, the prophets said this. The prophets already declared that man by wisdom will never even begin to imagine the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, we, we left on our own, we would never, not only would we never figure this out, we would never even dream that this is how God would do it. Now, notice this. He speaks of the rulers of this age. He says that they did not understand it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he's talking about the powers that, the power structures, of course, that put to death Jesus. It was the Jewish power structure combined with the Roman power structure, and they together, they put to death the Lord of glory. It just proves that they had no idea about what was really happening, who Jesus really was, and what God was doing. But this is a significant thing that Paul says here. He speaks of the rulers of this age, and notice this, who are coming to nothing. The rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now think about when this was written. This was written some uh, 2,000 years ago, approximately. Think about the structures of power at the time. Guess what? They're gone. They're gone. They, they, they came to nothing. They were there for that season. You know, at the height of Roman glory, nobody would have ever imagined that this would someday just vanish. Someday it would be gone. Someday it would just, it, it would be corrupted and, and it, would, it would just end. And it did. And now we think back on the Roman period and we think back on it as history. We can go uh, to Italy, we can go to Rome, we can visit the Colosseum, we can you know, see the different sites and think, oh wow, how magnificent it must have been. But it's gone, it's over. And guess what? The same thing is true of today. The, th the same thing is true of today. Whatever uh, the, the power structures are today, uh, they're, they're coming to nothing. All of man's wisdom, all of our, our theories and our ideas and, and all of our developments. Now, I do think we're, you know, maybe this has been the case in previous generations uh, that nobody ever would have dreamed that it was all gonna at some point come crashing down. But you know, we're, it's like, I don't wanna generalize and say, you know, all of humanity, but, but much of humanity. Let's just take the, the rulers of the nations of the world. You know, we're sort of in a place where man has pretty much concluded that we're gonna figure this out. We, we don't need God. You know, recently, I didn't see this. Somebody was telling me that there was a, um, like a C-SPAN thing or something where they were discussing, 
something there on the floor of uh, Congress, and one of the Congress people got up and read a portion of scripture and uh, tried to apply it to the situation. And immediately someone else got up and said uh, something to the effect, this is just coming secondhand from the person who told me, but they said something to the effect like, hey, don't bring that in here. Don't quote the Bible. Uh, that has no place here. We, we have no room for that. So this is, this is the general mentality, right? Don't try to bring God into the picture. We don't, we don't want to hear anything that purports to be like God's wisdom. We've got it figured out. That, that is the world that we live in right now. And you see with the COVID responses, you see how well we've got it figured out. Right? It's mass confusion all over the world about how to even deal with this. So that's kind of just a little insight into how uh, effective human wisdom in the, in the long haul will be. But again, here's the point, that the rulers of this age and all of their accumulated understanding is coming to nothing. It's coming to nothing. We, we keep kind of just ending up at the, at the same place over and over and over again. It's like humanity is just walking in a circle. And maybe the circle expands as time goes on, as the population increases, and maybe, you know, walking around is a little longer than it was before. But, but we just kind of end up back at the same place, hating each other, destroying each other, all in the name of progress, all in the name of we're going to get it figured out. We're going to finally bring about the utopian, peaceful world that previous generations have imagined. But, you know, we're so much smarter than they are. We're going to be able to do it now because, you know, everybody, you know, 20 years ago was just so dumb. And now, uh, you know, today we know. But let it be stated for the record, the rulers of this age are coming to nothing, have always come to nothing, will always come to nothing. But there is a wisdom from God. There is a wisdom from God. And as verse 10 says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. So the problem, the Corinthians are, they're thinking of wisdom in the, just really, they're stuck in, in the present age. They're not thinking of wisdom in the new age understanding of it. And of course, by new age, I mean God's new age. I, I better clarify that. Somebody will, somebody will put on social media, Brian is now uh, a new age guy and he's <laughs> preaching new age doctrine. Yes, the new age is the age when Jesus reigns. And Jesus is reigning where? He's reigning. What is the church? The, the church is, it's not totally the kingdom of God, but the church is a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. So Christ is reigning and among us. See, these guys are saying, Paul, you know, come on, this is too simplistic. Give us something more sophisticated. Paul's saying, how do you get more sophisticated than the wisdom of God? It's impossible. 
So what does he say about the wisdom of God? He says that it was a, a wisdom, verse seven, jump around here. Uh, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So it's a mystery that has been hidden, but now, by implication, is revealed. So the wisdom of God has been revealed. It's been revealed through the cross. It's been revealed through Christ. It's been revealed through God's means of fixing the world. That, that's really what is ultimately going to happen, right? And what is all human uh, philosophy and these things? What, what is the, you know, the stated goal is we're going to fix the world. It deviates from that oftentimes, but, but I think, it, you know, in the end, that is, that's the point. We, we want to make the world a better place. We're going to fix the world. Uh, well, Paul says only God's wisdom can fix the world. And it's the wisdom that is manifested through the cross, and it's a wisdom that comes through the Spirit. And so, verse 10, God has revealed these things to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And then, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own Spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. So Paul is saying that this is what we speak. We're not speaking. They're saying, Paul, you know, you, you need to sound more like the voices around us. You need to sound more like these these wise, philosophical people. Paul says, no. I don't need to sound like that. Because the wisdom that we have is not that wisdom. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Holy Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. I mean, listen, that was part of the problem that they had with Paul. He didn't sound like the other people of the day. He didn't sound like the philosophical voices around him. And Paul says, I, I'm, I, I don't want to sound like them. I'm not trying to sound like them because we're not talking about the same thing. They're talking about a human wisdom. We are talking about a divine wisdom. That's why we talk the way we talk because these are the words the Spirit is giving to us to communicate about who he is and about what the reality of the kingdom is. Now, verse 14, he says, the person without the Spirit 
does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Wow, what, what an amazing truth. Paul, Paul is just saying that, uh, you know, the, the reason, and he, now you think people aren't going to listen because, I'm talking for Paul, you think people aren't going to listen because uh, my speech is not sophisticated enough. Paul says no. People aren't going to listen because they don't have the Spirit. And it's only through the Spirit that you can hear. It's only through the Spirit that you can receive and understand these things. And we talked a little bit about this previously, but, but this is so, I mean, this is true. Of course, it's true, but, but, it, but it's true. We know by experience how many people have, have put it in words like this, um, you know, I don't know, just suddenly it's like the lights came on. Like I, I had no understanding of any of this stuff. It didn't make any sense. I mean, how many people have said stuff like this? You know, yeah, I had friends who were believers and they would witness to me. And, you know, my, my, my grandmother, you know, would pray for me and talk to me about Jesus, and it just like went in one ear and out the other. It just, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't mean anything. And then, as the story goes on, and then, and then suddenly, it's like, man, it's like, wow. I, I just, I suddenly got it. I suddenly saw it. It, it kind of reminds me of the, the conversion story of C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He, he went through sort of a, a process of conversion in a sense because he went from atheism, first of all, to theism. So he went from you know, disbelieving in God, he was a, pretty much a Marxist uh, and an atheist. And then there, there came a point and he describes this relentless pursuit of the spirit, like that, that hound of heaven just tracking him down. And he, and he comes and he tells a story about how one night in his uh, study, he bowed his head and he admitted that there was a God. And he said he did so as the most reluctant convert in all of England. He just never, he did, but he, it was inescapable. He couldn't avoid it. It was like, yeah, the, you know, he's following the evidence wherever it leads and this is where it led him. But then at a later point, he tells the story of his conversion from theism to actual faith in Christ. And as, as he tells the story, it, it's kind of humorous because he's on his way. I, I can't remember if it was a zoo or he was going somewhere in a car. Do you remember where? Was it the zoo? Yep, I knew my uh, helper would know. <laughs> But he says he left, his, you know, wherever he was on his way to the zoo, he left as a theist and he arrived at the zoo as a Christian. And he doesn't even know what happened. <laughs> he just knew that suddenly he knew. See, that, that's what Paul's talking about here. This is a, it's a supernatural thing. And this is what 
Christianity is. It's, it's a supernatural thing. It's the spirit of God giving us understanding. And until that happens, we're clueless. Until that happens, we're, we're, we just remain in the dark. And so he says, the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment for who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him. So he's saying that the person with the spirit, when he says makes judgment about all things, um, doesn't mean that we just naturally, because of the spirit, we know everything. The all things are the things pertaining to God and, and who God is. But then he says that this person is not subject to merely human judgment. So the reason the unbeliever thinks it's foolish and judges those who trust in Christ as fools is because they don't have the capacity of the spirit. They, to them, it's just, it, this makes zero sense. And so in, in many ways, it's just a reminder to us what Paul is doing here is he's reminding us of the supernatural um, reality of the message, that this is indeed wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of the world. It's a different wisdom. It's a higher wisdom. It's the wisdom of God because, again, as we've said, all of man's accumulated wisdom and in the context of, of you know, helping us live better, I mean, we have accumulated knowledge through which we make advancements in technology and all of those wonderful kinds of things. But then when it comes to even all of the accumulated wisdom of man, we, we can't figure out how to stay married. We can't figure out how to not lie or cheat or steal. We can't figure out how to not be selfish. We, we, none of those things, we can't figure any of that out. And those are the real important things, right? All the other stuff is just, okay, fine. I'm glad we got that machine. That's fantastic. But it can't help you from or prevent you from hating your neighbor and wanting to kill him. Man's accumulated wisdom cannot do what we need to have done. But the wisdom of God can and does. Now, we have, he says, finally, the mind of Christ. And like I said, I wanted to kind of um, camp out here, I won't be too long, but let's think about this for a moment. Paul is saying to Christians, we have the mind of Christ. Now, in some ways, this is as, as we will see as we go on in Corinthians, and even as we maybe think about our own selves, this is a, I mean, it's, it's a reality that he's reminding them of, but it's a bit of an indictment as well. Because when you look at the, the Corinthians and even in the context of what we're talking about here, um, for people who have the mind of Christ, their, their thinking is all messed up. So Paul, it's a bit of an indictment. Like, can't you guys get it together? I mean, you actually have the mind of Christ. How is it that 
even though you possess the mind of Christ, you're obviously not applying it. You're not being instructed by it. You're not living accordingly. So let's talk just real quickly about the mind of Christ. What does that look like? Ideally, because again, we, we do have the mind of Christ because we put our faith in Christ, but the, the possibility and sometimes even the, the norm is that we have the mind of Christ, but we don't behave like we have the mind of Christ. Because if, if you really think about having the mind of Christ, that's gonna, it's going to impact how we live, right? So what does it look like to have the mind of Christ? Well, let's think about Christ himself. What, what, do we, what, like, what is the mindset of Jesus? Well, Jesus told us in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He basically said that he's gentle and he's humble. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Okay, wow. So the first thing we see is that the mind of Christ, uh, as we possess the mind of Christ, and as we walk in the reality of that, that is going to, it's going to lead to a gentleness and a humility. We know also that the mind of Christ led him to serve rather than to be served. That great passage in Philippians 2, Paul writes, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being by very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So the mind of Christ, the person who who has the mind of Christ and who uh, realizes that and is, is you know, being influenced by that and that, that's being assimilated into their lives. That's a, a person who's gentle and humble and servant-oriented. And thirdly, it, it's a person who I would say is calm-minded. Calm-minded in the, in the face of uh, the storm. This is a quote from Psalm 16 that's applied in Acts 2.25 by Peter to Jesus. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I will not be rattled. I will not be unsettled. Or I will be calm. So the mind of Christ is a calm mind. Fourthly, the mind of Christ is a spiritually informed, spirit-enlightened mind. Now remember, we have the mind of Christ, so think about this. A scripturally informed, spirit-enlightened 
wise perspectives and decision making. So our, our, our perspectives on things and our decision making are going to be wise because they're scripturally informed and they're spirit enlightened. So Jesus was scripturally informed. It says at least 10 times in the New Testament uh, that, uh, that Christ, he did it more than this, but, but specific uh, quotations from scripture, at least 10 times Jesus said, it is written. So as we go through the gospels, one of the things we see about Jesus is he was saturated in the scriptures. And then, of course, we know that he was uh, empowered. He was enlightened by the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, and so we, this is, this is what it is to have the mind of Christ. If we're really living and walking in the mind of Christ as, we, as we're invited to, as we're called to, then our perspectives and our decisions are going to be wise. You know, I, I do believe, though, that part of our problem, let's talk about being scripturally informed for a moment. Part of our problem is that we, we're not, we don't really know the scriptures like we think we do. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that can quote Bible verses, and they, they maybe even have like a thousand Bible verses committed to memory. But you know, when you, when you really get down to it, it's all sort of random. The Bible verse, and it, it might be, I mean, the Bible verse is true, but you know, we have to understand that every verse has a context. So we might think that the Bible says something because we know this verse. But when we see it in its context, we go, oh, wait, wait, it doesn't, wait, it, wait, that, that seems like it means something else. Yeah, it actually probably does mean something else. I've had this experience myself where, you know, I just am assuming I, I know this verse. I've never really thought so much about what came before it or what came after it. I just know this verse. It's a great verse. And then suddenly you see it in its context and you're like, wait a second, that, that's, I didn't think that that meant that. So we have to, when we're talking about being scripturally informed, we need to make sure we're really scripturally informed in the sense that we understand the scriptures in their context. That we understand, first of all, that they have a, uh, a, a original historic application. You know, isn't it true that most of the time we read the Bible like it was just written <laughs> right to us? And, and we find ourselves thinking, well, how does this really work for me? I don't really know. Well, maybe it doesn't. That might be shocking to some people, but, you know, as, as someone has said, the Bible was written for us but it was not written to us in the sense that it, there was an audience that was intended. You know, when, especially in the Gospels, you think of the Gospels, the Gospels are recording things that Jesus said to people that were right in front of him. 
Now, of course, we, many of those things, of course, they, they have a broader and a, and a more distant application. I'm not saying that we don't, we don't take that and we don't apply it to ourselves. But what I am saying is that before we do that, before we just assume that this verse is just written for me, let's see it in its context and let's think about, well, what did it say to those that originally received it? Here's, here's a quick example. Uh, Jesus is talking to these uh, men. There's 11 of them now because Judas has defected. But Jesus says this to them, and this has been perplexing to so many people. Jesus says, the works that I do, you will do greater works than these because I go to the Father. How many have read that and thought, gosh, how do we do greater works than Jesus? And if we're gonna do greater works than Jesus, how come we don't see a whole lot of that going on around us? I mean, how come we're not raising the dead? How come everybody who's sick, they're not coming in and we're just laying hands on them and healing them? And how come when we have a deficiency, we're not just making more bread and fish and all of that sort of stuff? Well, let's stop for a second. Who was Jesus talking to? He's talking to these men right in front of him. And these men would essentially do what he said. They would do it because that was part of their apostolic calling and it was their, it was their apostolic credential. And so we read in the book of Acts and they did stuff like that. So there's a woman named Dorcas. She's a great gal and she makes all kinds of wonderful things and she dies. And everybody's sad. But they hear Peter's in town. So Peter comes over and what does he do? He goes up and he lays hands on her just like Jesus did with a young girl. And he says, daughter, arise. And she raises from the dead. And so we see what Jesus said being worked out in the book of Acts. And so we realize, okay, Jesus was saying that specifically to them. And not to say that it can't occasionally have a broader application. The Lord might speak it and say, I'm gonna do this right now. But my point is, we must, in order to be genuinely scripturally informed, we must consider the context. So we're not misunderstanding and then misapplying and then acting unwisely rather than wisely. Now, Christian people with the mind of Christ, and that's, we all have the mind of Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus today, you have the mind of Christ. We should be known for our love, our humility, our grace, our peace, and our wisdom. Christians should be people that even non-Christians look at and think, well, it seems like they kind of know how to do it. Seems like they kind of know how, to, how you're supposed to live. And when we do apply the mind of Christ to our lives and we do live accordingly, people look on and people are, they, they, they are impressed. You know, God said this to Israel. God said to Israel, look, I... There's no nation on the face of the earth that has a God that's so near to them. 
who, who works on their behalf. God wanted Israel to be uh, an advertisement to the rest of the nations for who he was and what it was like to be his people. So the other nations could say, hey, we want in on that. We want to be part of the people of God too. Now that's exactly what God intends for the church as well. So since we have the mind of Christ, we ought to expect that our behavior is gonna be marked by wisdom. And if we look around at the church and we think that, I don't think we're doing a good job manifesting wisdom to the world around us today. We don't have people lining up saying, hey, tell us about that. Quite the contrary, we have people saying, what's the matter with these Christians? They've kind of lost their mind. We thought they cared about X, Y, and Z, but it seems that they, no, they just really care about these other things that seem inconsistent. So, you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Not you're going to get the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ presently. So let's realize it and let's live it out. And let's remember what it looks like that it's a calm mind because we're trusting the Lord. That it's the mind that's not set on myself and my own thing. But, but my, my concern is for others. It's the mind of Christ that manifests itself in, in gentleness and in humility. It's the mind of Christ that's scripturally informed and spirit enlightened. Now, in conclusion, come back around to God's wisdom that is based in the cross. As Peterson's paraphrase says, this wisdom didn't come from reading books or going to school. Now, this is not to say we shouldn't read books or go to school. It's, it's just, the, again, the reality is we're talking about something supernatural here. It's the wisdom of the kingdom and we must be part of the kingdom in order to receive it. You know, Jesus said this in John chapter three. Remember there Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's, he's one of the people that everybody around him is gonna be looking to him like, okay, you're, you're one of those wise people. You tell us, uh, tell us things about God we need to know so we can do them. That's how, that's how Nicodemus would have been viewed. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Nobody could do the things that you're doing unless God was with them. But so just, I, I, don't, get, I don't get it. And Jesus sort of chides him. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't get these things? But then Jesus goes on to tell him why. He says, you must be born again. And you know, literally, 
born again is you must be born from above. You must be born from above because unless you're born from above, you can't even perceive the kingdom. That's what Paul's saying. This this wisdom is inaccessible to those who are outside the kingdom. You've got to be born into the kingdom and Jesus will go on to refer to it as you've got to be born of the spirit. So that goes back to what Paul is saying here that it's about the spirit, the spirit of God. We have the mind of Christ because we're indwelt by the spirit of Christ. And that is true for everyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so I trust that most everyone here this morning has probably done that. But if there happens to be anyone that's with us that hasn't, put your faith and trust in Christ. And maybe you're trying to figure it out. Maybe you're, you know, you... You've kind of seen some things and heard some things, and maybe you know some of your you have some Christian friends, and maybe that's how you ended up here, and you're you're wondering about this, but you're still it's fuzzy. You can't write, you can't really grasp it. You have to be born of the spirit. The lights have to come on, and they will come on. The moment you say, Lord, take me, I'm yours. Lord, here I am. Here's my life. And then the the life of the Spirit possesses you. And you now have the mind of Christ. And you begin to understand. And you begin to grow. And then you become that person who is gentle and humble and servant-oriented and calm and gracious and loving and kind and wise through the power of the Spirit. So, Lord, we thank you that we have the mind of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that your Spirit, the Spirit that has made us alive, the spirit that gives us a wisdom that transcends the wisdom of the world. Lord, would you fill us afresh with your spirit today? And Lord, for anyone that's joined us that maybe hasn't made that that connection yet, may they open their hearts and may they receive your gift the gift of the Spirit and the wisdom that comes with that.